You're listening to Fix Me a Drink, a Flaviar podcast. Welcome to another edition of Fix Me a Drink. I'm Noah Rothbaum, the head of cocktails and spirits at Flaviar. Joining me as always is my colleague and co-host, David Weinkirch. How are you, Dave? I'm doing just fine. Yourself? I am good. Uh, looking forward to our episode today. It's uh, with our, our old friend Robert Simonson, obviously the author of many books, but most recently, Modern Classic Cocktail, 60 plus stories and recipes from the new golden age in drinks. We're going to throw a little bit of a curveball at Robert since we don't actually want to talk about modern classics with him, but we want to We've talk about some, a prime piece of cocktail geekery to, to kick right. around. And who better to kick around, kick it around with? <laughs> exactly. Who else will indulge us in our questions? So um, we are going to go back in time to talk about some drinks that are popular now and whether or not they were popular back in the day and how they became classics. We'll see what he says and uh, and how long he'll entertain our, our questions. So we'll get Robert on the line in a minute. Thank you for joining us today. It's my pleasure. We've been uh, checking out your latest book. Dave and I started talking about, you know, which cocktails are enduringly popular today and, you know, the sort of how we, we think about classic cocktails, you know, not just not just the ones that were made today, but, but some of the ones that we consider, you know, uh, classics and whether or not they really are classics. Uh, when Robert and I happened to be... Sp- speaking at the same conference in in Spain, the, the Spanish bar show, uh, I was listening to him talk about uh, modern classic cocktails and giving a very engaging presentation. I, I started uh, thinking, something I'd been kind of kicking around in my brain for a while is, you know, a lot of the, the what we consider classic cocktails that are the, we think are old favorites and tried and true and these these drinks have always been popular they might be old but they were never popular until uh recent days they've been revived in the in the in recent years and it's a funny sort of twilight class and you know this brings up all kinds of questions about uh what is a is a true classic cocktail uh what's a modern classic or are these modern classics in disguise so we we thought we'd have the uh, expert on modern classics come in and uh, we'd kick it around some. But something that I, I thought of as I was putting together the book, the, the book is uh, the cocktail recipes that are in the book. They comprised of uh, mainly cocktails from the last 25 or 30 years, mm-hmm. which we consider the cocktail renaissance. And uh, I call them modern classics because they're just not classic classics like the Martini and the Manhattan. You know, they're more of more... Right. Modern just means of more recent vintage, but obviously there are there is this weird uh, netherworld class of cocktails, this kind of gray area of cocktails that are very old, sometimes a hundred years old, sometimes more, that were revived by bartenders during the cocktail revival and are now very famous. Uh, drinks like the Last Word and the Boulevardier, but right. they were never famous before. Um, I never really considered including them in the book. It just didn't make sense um, no, that a drink no. that was 100 years old should be in the book. <laughs> um, and yet, like the question that you posed in Spain, um, I I regularly get these questions from people at book events. Did you ever consider putting the last word in? So obviously, 
this is a little problem that that does occur to people. Yeah, I mean, there are a bunch of these drinks, and this comes into how you figure out a drink is a classic. And I know you've got some good rules on it's got to be, you know, have traveled from its home bar. uh, It has to be accepted, et cetera, et cetera. And some of these drinks were maybe popular at their home bar or they made it into a good cocktail book. But -hmm. you take a drink like the Blinker, you know, really it doesn't appear on cocktail lists. Uh, Actually, I went through uh, five cocktail lists from top New York City hotels from 1939 to 1941 Mm -hmm. and did a little concordance to see what people were actually drinking. And it's very interesting. You know, they there's a lot of agreement between these. Some uh, all five served uh, at least four of the five served some 34 drinks in common. We don't see that anymore. No, you know, every bar's no. got a different list. In, each one had a couple one-offs that only they made some house specials, but there was a lot of uh, a lot of overlap. And the interesting thing, one of the interesting things to me is the drinks that were really popular that have not been revived. We revived other drinks instead of those, and that's kind of funny. I mean, the dead drinks, like. Some of these are debatable how dead they are, but like the Alexander, yeah. does anybody ever order those? No, people order the Brandy Alexander, yeah. but I can't remember a time when anyone ordered an Alexander. Was it John Lennon who ordered a Brandy Alexander or an Alexander? That put it on the map like in the late 70s or something. Yeah, it, but was, that... it was popular in the disco drink era, the Brandy <laughs> one. And, mm-hmm. But then but, it died. I, I mean, have you? when was the last time you heard somebody order a Bronx? Yeah, that that's a cocktail that the uh, I mean, the bartenders who were in charge of the great cocktail bars in the last 20 years, they did make choices. Yeah. And there were certain drinks they chose not to resuscitate. And the Bronx was definitely one of them. I, I there, there is no savior of the Bronx. No, no one has tried. I mean, oh. a well, lot of these. <laughs> well, in the Bronx obviously is gin and uh, both what dry and sweet vermouth and orange juice. Is that yeah, a little bit of orange? Extremely popular for a short period of time at the before prohibition, and then never, never again. It was the cosmopolitan of the 19 aughts in that it got everybody drinking cocktails. People who never, you know, really drunk cocktails uh, were drinking out of cocktail glasses because of the Bronx. But after that, it sort of disappeared. But I mean, you look at this list of, of some of these: the Lone Tree. That's a, basically a sweet. Vermouth martini, nobody really makes those. Mm-hmm. Uh, the orange blossom, gin and orange juice, not very exciting. But Yeah, that's another water. drink that's never coming back. But one that I, I wish would come back, for instance, the Pink Lady, that's a great drink. That is good. Lemon juice, grenadine, gin and applejack, maybe a little egg white. Well, what, what happened during the revival is the bartenders went back to all the old books, which were mm-hmm. some of them were reprinted and they were available to everyone again. And they were able to pick and choose, you know, and they found some uh, diamonds in the rough, some lost gems. And they said, well, mm-hmm. why don't we give that a try? I mean, I mean, obviously, uh, the um, poster child of this kind of drink is the last word. Right. Uh, which was discovered by a bartender named Murray uh, Stenson in Seattle. 
he found it in a copy of Bottoms Up, an old cocktail book, yeah. decided to start serving it. And because it was, you know, the age of the Internet, you know, it, it got around pretty quickly. And within just a few years, people were serving last words everywhere. It's funny when Murray revived it, he revived it almost as a disco drink because he made it on the rocks in a huge pint glass. And that's how you got the last words originally from Murray. And then later bartenders came and, you know, returned it to the the the, the, the straight up cocktail. But, uh, you know, because Murray got to that drink a long time ago and mm-hmm. there wasn't much of an audience for what we would consider finely crafted, like really traditional cocktails. So he 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 kind of worked it into uh, into the, the popular drink culture of the Pacific Northwest at the time. I mean, and of course, it's gin and what, green chartreuse and maraschino liqueur and lime juice with like a cherry. And Dave and I once did a talk at the Detroit um, Athletic Club, right? It was invented. It was invented there or for them. Yeah, for them. And it, I mean, I, I think that's one of the perfect examples of, you know, we, we had all these old books that people found like in mm-hmm. libraries or used book sales or, you know, uh, you know, yard sales, you know, and, and we, we sort of dug into them, looked for cool things. And it was kind of random, you know what I mean? Like, I, I'm not sure if people really understood. Like, I think we just assumed that these were all popular back in the day. I think some people still assume that. I right, think some exactly. people think the last word has always been a classic. Right, exactly. And, and that we just sort of tried everything. Drinks like the blood and sand which was never had any traction back in the day. I think people were judging by what they found in cocktail books. And cocktail books always copy other cocktail books. So if something makes it into one cocktail book, it will get into a whole lot of other cocktail books, whether anybody was drinking it or not. And that's always kind of a, a, a fallacy as well. It's in all these books, it must've been very popular. There is one kind of joining factor in a lot of these um, lost drinks that became famous in the new era. Uh, They often contained ingredients that bartenders were trying to champion at the time. So like the last word, you know, they wanted people to drink gin and and chartreuse. The Boulevardier, they wanted people to drink bitter drinks, to drink Campari. The same thing with the Jungle Bird, a lost tiki drink. It had Campari in it. And the aviation had maraschino, which few bars had. And gin, which was an endangered uh, animal at the time. So if you ordered one of those, it was a little bit of a secret handshake. Yeah, and creme de violette, which for a, a little short period of time, people were excited about and really wanted to bring back. Yeah, I mean, when when it was first revived, uh, that was by Paul Harrington from Wired. He used the Savoy version, which didn't have creme de violette. Nobody knew that that was, the original ingre- was an original ingredient. It was just the gin and the maraschino. Those were definitive weird drink ingredients at the time. It was much simpler, you know. You didn't have to get that weird to get into weird ingredients back then, uh, you know, in the in the 90s. Also, the, the Boulevardier has a great advantage of combining two uh, modern bro obsessions, uh, the Negroni and bourbon. There you go. So a bourbon Negroni, come on. I've always, I've always had a theory that uh, drinks don't get popular uh, unless they fill a need. And I think you, you're you driving in that direction very strongly with some of these drinks. Is, is they, there are functional reasons why they become revived and other ones didn't. 
a lot of the drinks that were popular back then that died were egg drinks, for instance, mm-hmm. because nobody really wants eggs now and nobody wants the calories and uh, egg drinks just strike people as weird. But like Sherry Flip was universal, the Port Flip, the drinks like that. And now you just don't see those at all. I think you're right that the Boulevardier was kind of perfect because it's easy to make, right? Uh, it's three equal parts, right, for the most part, right? You're mm-hmm. swapping out the gin and the groni for, for bourbon, and you have sweet vermouth and Campari, right? It gives you a little bit of street cred because you can make it at home fairly easily. And then also, you know, famously, people like, well, it's in Harry's, you know, it's from Harry's bar. It was from his book, Bar Flies and Cocktails, right? And it's like, and then most people, that's enough, right? And even in articles, it's like, oh, it, it comes from, you know, Barflies and Cocktails, which was published in, I think, what, 27 or something. And then then you actually, if you actually take the time to look at Barflies and Cocktails, you realize that it's not actually in the main text. No, it's a footnote. Right. It's like in an appendix that his friend <laughs> writes about drinks that people just ha- are having around Paris, right? Almost like a gossip column. Those drinks are, are weirdly assorted lot because some of them are joke drinks, uh, some of them are marketing drinks. I, I, you know, I, I think the the Boulevardier is a marketing drink because Campari uh, had a, a French off, a Paris office at the time and was sponsoring all kind of stuff. And uh, you know, this was the drink for a magazine. So, and also there was uh, an advertisement in that cocktail book for the Boulevardier magazine, which it was named after. So. Right. Very clearly a marketing uh, cocktail, but a good one. Being a footnote almost made it more romantic, you know, more catnip for bartenders. Mm -hmm. Like, look at this little thing at the back of the book that we found. Or any association with Harry McClone was like, you know, it it, it was enough to like get it back into books, get it back into articles. Mm -hmm. Whether or not it was a joke, (laughs) whether or not people actually tried, it didn't matter because most people actually wouldn't go to that step to find the book. So, you know, it was one of these... Again, I think we have these illusions as to what was going on in Paris in the 20s, right? We have, you know, just as we do with Prohibition. I mean, so I mean, if the number of times the three of us have heard X drink is a Prohibition drink, it was so popular during Prohibition. Meanwhile, you know, the, the state of cocktails was pretty sag shaped during Prohibition for most people, right? I mean, if unless you, you were in Paris or London or something, or like super that. wealthy and you had your, you know, your your country club or your club in the city that was had a full bar stock from beforehand. Most where, people where the were, basement had the contents of several liquor stores. Exactly. Most people are not, you know, the whole idea that it was this golden age was Prohibition. Of course, is a fallacy and. And just it's it's sort of layer on top of layer of some of these myths where you get, you know, X drinks or like the Boulevardier suddenly takes on this importance that it never had. It also helps if you get that bartender, that important bartender advocate. You know, the last word had Murray Stenson, uh, the Boulevardier, uh, Toby Cicchini very famously wrote a big article in the New York Times magazine saying everyone should make this drink. Uh, the Jungle Bird was uh, championed by Richie Bacato and Giuseppe Gonzalez. That was also Jeff Barry who recovered it, though. So it's not a, it's not just bartenders. There were a lot of uh, writers who were also I- I- instrumental in reviving some of these early on because some of these kind of didn't just go through bars. They went through media. Well, that's true. I mean, 
you yourself, David, I mean, I associate you with the return of the New York Sour of people learning about the Cameron's yeah. kick, drinks like that, which are pretty well known now. You know, it was all low hanging fruit at the time. <laughs> but uh, the, the funny thing about the New York Sour is you can consider it one of these sleeper classics in that it very rarely turns up back in the day. But it, but that's only under the name New York Sour. There were a lot of different names for that drink, and it turns out to have been quite popular, particularly before Prohibition. It was a, almost a standard way of making the whiskey sour. When I was writing my book in Vibe, I, of course, chose to put it in there under the New York Sour because I'm from New York. So, <laughs> I mean, there's really no other reason. You know? yeah. If I were from the South, I would have called it a Southern Sour. So some of that stuff is is kind of random, but... Uh, but you know, as as you know, early coverage for some of these was was very helpful. People were, I, I mean, Paul Harrington's book was was hugely influential because that was the first book that his book cocktail uh, that came out in uh, 1998, and that was really the first book to go cocktail by cocktail and write up the little histories of them and have a tested recipe, uh, each with its own essay. And it it had uh, a lot of the cocktails, the lost cocktails that have now become common. You know, Corpse Survivor Number Two was in there. Pegu Club was in there. Yeah, and the Pegu Club. It seems like it was famous because uh, Harry Craddock says it was famous back in the day. But then you actually go and look through newspapers and stuff, and it is never mentioned. It is just not a not a not a word about the Pegu Club cocktail anywhere. If you only go through cocktail books, you get one view of reality. I would say that like Ted Hayes book, obviously, Vintage Spirits and Forgotten Cocktails does the same thing where, I mean, if they weren't famous before they were in that book, they certainly were famous afterwards because that became for so many cocktail bars, you know, the Bible that they were making drinks from and stories to tell. And it didn't matter if they were famous or not, because suddenly just by the dint of being in that book, they were suddenly well known and now suddenly popular in all bars, you know, that of, of note. I associate the Blinker with that book and several yeah, other the drinks. Blinker for sure. Then there's, you know, the Saturn, which Jeff Berry copied off of a glass, the recipe. In the Jeff Berry is, has broken a lot, a lot of drinks. You know, he's, he's revived from the dead. They should call him the reanimator. Um, but, That's right. Uh, he's he's done that for many tiki drinks. Uh, many tiki three, drinks. three dots and a dash actually has yeah. a bar named yeah. after in Chicago yeah. now. Now, the Jungle Bird was, you know, that was... Jeffrey Ong at the uh, Kuala Lumpur. It wasn't the Hilton. It was one of the other hotels. He came up with this for their for their aviary bar. It was called amusingly because now we've got an aviary bar in Chicago and New York. But uh, it was the aviary bar that actually had tropical birds flying in it, which is kind of a nightmare from a drink consumer <laughs> point of view, because I don't think they had diapers. Yeah, I don't want to think about that part. But, but yeah. uh, and Jeffrey Ong invents this drink, and uh, it makes it into one of those 80s wad of drinks books, John Poister's New Bartender's Guide, I think it was. And uh, Jeff mined it out of there. Mm-hmm. The one drink in that whole 2000 drink book that that was worth paying attention to god bless him you know i hate to think of a world that we didn't have the jungle bird in and we very 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 nearly had that world but the interesting thing about that drink is technically the jungle bird we know and love isn't the jungle bird that was created uh 
Richie Picado and Giuseppe Gonzalez. I mean, they put in black strap rum in there and you get you get a different drink, I think a better drink, but that's the drink we drink. Well, also they cut the pineapple juice way down because the original one was in the mode of the uh, revised uh, Singapore sling, uh, the, the, the Raffles gin sling, which got discoed up in the uh, early 70s and uh, with a lot of juice. And that was the, the jungle bird kind of fell into that. So here's a question. I mean, does that then count as a modern classic because it's so altered? Well, so many of the drinks are so altered. Like the Boulevardier coming on the rocks. I don't think it was originally a rocks drink. I could, I can't remember. I don't know the book handy, but I don't think it said anything about how how it was served. And so many bartenders today now serve it with rye, you know, right. which is yeah. somewhat controversial. Yeah, that was an old pal. I mean, right. yeah, was with Canadian whiskey. That was the same drink, but with Canadian passed for rye. You were talking about before, like bartenders championing certain drinks because they have certain ingredients, right? They wanted yeah. to, but also the same thing doomed a lot of cocktails, right? Where, oh, yeah. you know, you have something like the Bacardi cocktail, which was so famous that, you know, it's one of the few that actually is trademarked, right? The name. because yeah, and that was such... one of the ones that were on the list of all five exactly. bars that I, right. that, that, that I put together. And everybody would have known it, but I think what really doomed it is that it's made with grenadine. And grenadine is like one of those ingredients that the modern craft cocktail world has sort of banned. And so many drinks called for grenadine, mm. whether it was in the 50s, 60s, 70s. I know, Dave, all the research that you did with early tequila drinks in America, so many of them call for grenadine. So many of them had grenadine. And our view of grenadine now is completely different than the way that people viewed it before. And I feel like, you know, so many of the craft cocktail bartenders, at least the first wave, going through these books, it was like grenadine, nope. Like, yeah. you know, this ingredient, nope. Like, you know, next... Well, Bacardi was also a problem because that had changed so much over right. the years, you know? So it's just, it's just interesting. It's it, They clearly, you know, certain, certain ingredients brought mm -hmm. these recipes to the top of the list, and I think certain ingredients just buried them, and there was no convincing a lot of these people until, like... Again, somebody would come along as a champion and show that it was actually a good drink or, you know, that a blue cocktail could be enjoyable. It wasn't necessarily horrible. You know, the eggs was 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 one, uh, another very big one, of course, and various uh, milk drinks and cream drinks were sort of out. One drink that you mentioned to me earlier, David, the Brooklyn, I mean, that's yeah. that's problematic because... I mean, one of the recipes calls for America Pecan, and we don't have it the way it used no. to be. So we talk a lot about the Brooklyn, but I don't think that cocktail ever fully comes back because... The ingredients been reformulated so much. Uh, the modern version of America Pecan it, is, is much lower proof than the one that was uh, on sale in 1916 yeah. uh, or, or 19... I think 1908 is when it first turns up in uh, uh, Jack Rojasco's book. Yeah. Also, originally it was with sweet vermouth, and now everybody makes it with dry vermouth, which right. makes it kind of a nasty drink, I think. 
Yeah, I think the Brooklyn's main purpose these days is an inspiration for modern better drinks. I think you're right. You know, yeah. you you get you have a lot of uh, uh, I, I know uh, there's there's a lot of that uh, of, of those variations in your book. And uh, yeah, the Red Hook and all its brethren. That was kind of a fun moment when everybody was like, hey, here's another neighborhood. <laughs> what, what is it? You, I think you call it in, in your book, the Phil Ward's Mr. Potato Head school mm. of like bartending where you just. Yeah. You pull out one ingredient, you replace it with something else. And, uh, you know, sometimes even those new versions uh, sometimes eclipse the original drink, right? And or or become mm -hmm. synonymous with the original, which, again, begs your question, like, you know, is it really the same drink if you've right. swapped out half the ingredients right. or they've been reformulated and it's it's in name only? Well, we've we've all been to cocktail bars uh, where they have the name drink on the menu, but obviously they've messed around with it because they decided they could make it better. And you're saying, well, I'm not really drinking a bee's knees, am I? You know, right. so why did you call it a bee's knees? It has no honey. It has no gin. It has no lemon juice. How is this a bee's knees? <laughs> it's always the worst sign when you're like, I'd like a darkened story. Like, well... We make it a little bit different than here. And yeah. it's like, just run, just get out. Yeah. Like, you know, <laughs> to take your coat and run for the door because what comes has no connection to what you're expecting or the original drink except its name, which feels like some kind of version of switch and bait, you know, where, yeah. you know, yes. and, and, and there's no arguing with them. Even if you're like, all right, I had your version. Can we go to the classic one? Like, oh, we don't make that here. Like, please. Like, I had your version. <laughs> I mean, that's why I just drink dry gin martinis now. <laughs> I, I've given up. I, I don't. I don't even look at the cocktail list. You should try mine, Dave. Uh, the my dry martini for you, which has chinar, um, two types of amaro. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we are currently living in the age of the the new teeny age of lots of martinis that are not martinis, not unfortunately. Martini. Yeah, uh, I mean, looking through these uh, menus, uh, the, I looked through. You know, these were five top New York hotels. I looked through the menus from the Astor, the uh, Commodore, the mm -hmm. New Yorker Hotel, the Roosevelt, and the McAlpin. Those were all yeah. famous for their bars, and they had you know these nice printed cocktail lists and. God damn, did I want to go sit at one of those bars? Because you just look at the list and these are all normal drinks that are going to be good, right. like one after the other, you know? Uh, the 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 ones that they were all serving were like an Alexander, a Bacardi, a Bronx, a champagne cocktail, a Clover Club. You know, mm -hmm. the list goes on and every one of those would be great. It also serves kind of as a benchmark, right? Where it's yeah. like to show how good we are, we make the best Manhattan, exactly. we make the best, you know, Bacardi cocktail. Make, Jack Rose. Yeah, <laughs> you like know? you think you you think you know what a good one is? Like come to yeah. our bar, like, and that's the kind of thing that we used to see, like you know, our our favorite Norman Buckles or R.I.P. who used mm -hmm. to work at the Ritz Carlton on Central Park South. I mean, he could make you any drink, but his the only drink that you'd want is his Manhattan, right? And it was bespoke depending upon what whiskey you chose and. That was what he was known for. And it was like, you know, try to beat Norman's Manhattan. Mm -hmm. And that, you know, and that's a lot. Of, I think those hotels too was, you know, this is like we've we've perfected these drinks. We've worked hard at them. Mm -hmm. This is where we're showing how good we are by making the classics the best that we can. I mean, in a way, the modern bars have kind of taken themselves out of competition with each other. Right. You know, you can't. How do you judge? All their drinks are completely different and nobody serves the same drink. 
I think the closest we have in New York right now to uh, a bar that makes a great many classics and makes them classically and well is Gage and Tolner. They have a very yeah. long list of classic cocktails and they pretty much stick to the. Yeah, they stick to them. You know, they yeah. monkey a little bit, but not like just a little, just not outside the realms of reason. That's when you get the shock of the old coming as the shock of the new, you know, it's like you go in, it's like, oh my God, look at this. I want all of these. There's no, no weird accommodations, you know, it's, uh, there's no, hey, look at me. It's very hard to choose your drink at that yeah. restaurant. Yeah, it is. And that idea seems so antiquated. It's almost new, right? It's come so far yeah. around that this seems like a modern trend that they would only do classics. Well, let's hope so. You know, that would be a modern trend I'd get behind. That would be good. I would love it if, if most cocktail bars, you know, a would revive their own classics rather than, you know, sticking to the ones that have become like kind of cliches, like, like we've been talking about the, some of these sleeper classics, et cetera, but also just have a mix of, Maybe one side of the menu is all classics, and the mm -hmm. other side is their drinks. Yeah, yeah. Uh, just so that it's so much more inclusive, because right now it always seems it seems like there's so much secret handshaking going on uh, when you look at the cocktail lists. There's so many ingredients that are uh, deliberately obscure. Uh, so many recipes that are extremely complicated. Yeah. And it, it, it seems uh, exclusionary, let's say. I mean, I often find myself trying to figure out what that would taste like and no idea. And if, and if like, we're struggling with that, like, what is the regular, yeah. you know, customer right. thinking? I mean, I, and I would love to see, like, things like, you know, mink juleps were made with all types of liquor back in the day, right? I mean, mm -hmm. it's only in the modern age. I mean, you're, this is, a, I mean, this is another one where we owe, we associate the mink julep exclusively with bourbon these days where is that really a classic wearing Jerry Thomas? Like it's the fifth recipe yeah, right. calls, or whatever it is out of eight that calls yeah. for whiskey, where it's really a rum drink. Right. And like, you know, often, and like, that would be amazing to see people going back to, you know, Tom Bullock's, you know, mink julep, mm -hmm. you know, and making some yeah. of these older versions that were that were we know were delicious instead of just sort of shooting in the dark, picking drinks at random and thinking, okay, it's in the Savoy, it's gotta be good. Like we're instead like, why don't we make it easy and go after drinks that we know people loved and were delicious and remake those? So here's a question. I mean, do you think it's still possible in this day and age for old obscure cocktails that were never famous in their day to be brought back? and achieve the fame of a last word or a jungle bird. Is that going mm. to happen still? Well, I, I think you you kind of nailed one of the, the, the main driving force behind that is force of personality. Who's the advocate? Mm -hmm. You know, if somebody's advocating it, who has a big enough platform, whether it's in the bartending community or with the general public or, or whatever, I guess it could happen. It's it's less likely now than it was because there was a, there were a lot of holes that needed filling in sort of the drinks a bartender was supposed to know. A lot of these classics were unsuitable to the modern world, and so that that left uh, that left some room to find things that better fit with the modern sensibility. And I still think. I mean, a every time we're like we know all of the cocktail books that were ever published. We discover like another 
couple yeah. dozen, right? <laughs> there were yeah. so many cocktail books, so many bartenders. And the fact that ingredients change, the fact that people's tastes change over certainly the last 100 or 150 years, I do think we'll still find, I mean, not a huge number, but people will come across things in books or articles, you know, writers, bartenders, cocktails, and find stuff that, oh, this sounds interesting, or it's a refinement on something that we do today, but it turns out to be better if you did it slightly differently. That's the good news. The bad news is they're all going to be shooters. Right. <laughs> <laughs> they're all going to have melon ball in them. Yeah, yeah, they're all going to be revived from like 1978. <laughs> okay, they're going to rediscover all the lost shooters of the past. Yeah. They'll, they'll, be, they'll be like whole shooter, you know, shooter correspondence and books of, yeah, exactly, uh, forgotten classic shooters. And uh... <laughs> we'll be using like Ben and Jerry's instead of crappy ice cream for your shooter day. Yeah, exactly. I think for that to happen, though, it's just like modern classics. The bars and bartenders have to stick to their guns if they really believe in the drink. Put it in the menu, get behind it, and leave it there for a while. Don't switch it out in three months or nothing's going to happen. That's the corollary that we need more consistency. And Dave and I recently saw Sean Kenyon um, in Denver. And, and what did he say? He said, Dave, thank you for the advice that you gave me, I think, in 2008. Yeah, when he was opening Williams and Graham. And the advice was you should always leave a couple of the drinks on the menu. So when folks come back, they remember that these are like the house signatures. Like these are the ones that will always be served at this bar and, and kind of be known for these drinks. And I think that's well, great advice still today. Well, for not all everybody is a regular. You right. know? And not everybody is bored with your menu. Some people come in only every once in a while. And, you know, give them something to hang on to. It's very good advice. I mean, I often find myself gravitating to the same dishes at restaurants, no matter mm -hmm. how often we Absolutely. You know, eat there. And it's the same thing at a bar. It's like, I, I remember Pegu Club had Audrey Saunders Bar. Uh, Kenta Goto was, you know, the bar manager for many years. And he had a drink, the Zelda, right? It was like a oh, yeah. Plymouth Gin and Cherry cocktail that I fell in love with. Uh -huh. They took it off the menu, but because Kent is so wonderful, he would keep the ingredients behind the bar because he knew that I would come in and order it. <laughs> and, to, and to make me happy, he would he would keep the ingredients on hand because I would come in often enough to order it. And that was my drink, even though it wasn't on the menu anymore. And that was, you know, that was a wonderful thing that he did, um, a real mitzvah. Um, but like, you know, I think you realize it's a great drink. Like, don't take it off the menu. Fortunately, you know, Pegu Club always had the Pegu Club on the menu, Absolutely. which makes sense, which was always great. And I always drank those. Same as the Clover Club's the Clover Club. I mean, they make an absolutely perfect Clover Club. And, you know, you're, you're drinking that and it's hard to imagine a better cocktail. Oh, the aforementioned Toby Cicchini keeps the Boulevardier on his, on his menu always, yeah. you know, and uh, that's usually what I'll order. because Why? Because it's great. Yeah, they're very good at uh, Long Island Bar of consistency. They keep the same drinks on the menu. There's very little change. We have an opportunity here. So these are not classic classics, not modern classics. What do we call these, this category of drinks that are old drinks but not popular until recently? Is there a, a name well, we I've can use? I've been calling them sleeper classics, just like uh, sleeper agents used to were the ones who were sent to countries to get a job and stay out of sight and 
and just, you know, burrow their way in until sometime many years down the road, they get a little call on their hidden radio and uh, suddenly they have to do something. So, you know, I, I, I just, I don't know what else to call them. I mean, really. You got a candidate, Noah? You got a name for these things? Uh, maybe like second chance classics or something. Um, yeah, late bloomers. Late, I mean, lost classics isn't really true because... They, they were never lost. Right. I mean, nobody <laughs> nobody knew, nobody wanted them then. And, and it's like, or like unwanted classics, you know, I, I don't know. I, the sleeper classic is maybe good, uh, although some of them were so deeply undercover that like i'm not sure if they even had a pulse some of these <laughs> yeah it's a miracle that some of these came back at all and again i mean i think that speaks often to the randomness of the way the rebirth of the cocktail and you know somebody would discover one book and you know would share certain parts of it or they would make certain conclusions whether mm -hmm. or not they were accurate based mm -hmm. upon limited resources. And if you look back 15, 20 years, some of the articles and ideas seem completely ludicrous because we didn't know better. <laughs> and yeah. we had no, we were grasping at straws before we were able to like really dig in and, and find concrete answers. We weren't reviving the, 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 the drinks that really should be revived, which kind right. of brings yeah. me to a question. If either of you had the chance to wave your magic wand and make one unknown old classic suddenly join this list and be available in any bar, what would it be? You mean completely unknown? Like no, well, nobody knows this drink. Only I make it. Not popular. <laughs> Simonson's fizz. I, I don't mean one that not even Joaquin Simo knows. In other words. Right. The one I mentioned earlier that you championed early Cameron's kick. It's a big favorite of mine, too. I still don't feel it's widely known uh, when you see it on a menu. It's rare. I, it would be great to have that, you know, break wider. I, I couldn't agree with you more. I think that's a delicious drink. And uh, also one of the rare drinks that uh, uses scotch and Irish whiskey. Yeah. Yes. And and bizarrely Orshot. I mean, again, I think the different types of mink juleps, like, you know, we've read about all these incredible mm -hmm. mink juleps that, you know, all bartenders across the South, mostly African-Americans were making that were incredible with all types of floats and ingredients would be, nobody's really brought that back. Um, even something as simple as one of the drinks on your nearly dead list, Dave, is the horse's neck, right? Which is... yeah very refreshing drink you you see obviously it's very closely related to the presbyterian or the highball but mm -hmm. the horse's neck is is delicious it, i guess the name supposedly derives from the lemon peel garnish yeah, that sort of spiral cut a long lemon peel yeah. and that was one that was usually just with soda but you could put like gin or, or whiskey in it and it's, it's just a tall glass of soda on the rocks with a long spiral of lemon peel i mean it's simple enough yeah and but and fun and sort of refreshing yeah. and yeah, it looks good. Oh, and the other thing that occurred to me that we should point out: all these drinks that we're discussing, these lost drinks that have become modernly popular, uh, they all have good names. So, like, yeah. if if yeah. the Bolivar Day was called something terrible, you know, it just had like a three-word name that nobody would it would have never come back. <laughs> this is true of modern drinks too. It has to have a good name. I think that's the problem with one that I've done my best to revive uh, with 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 not much success, uh, which is my, would be my vote for for drink to bring back the most. 
is the modern, this great cocktail invented by a Pennsylvania bartender up in oil country in about 1904. It's scotch whiskey and slow gin with a little bit of lemon juice and dashes of absinthe and orange bitters. It sounds like the weirdest thing imaginable, but mm -hmm. it is such a tasty drink. Like the Cameron's Kick, a scotch drink, which is also a strike against it because yeah. people you know, look askance at those. But oh my God, what a great drink. I wish that everybody would have it on their menu. But uh, the name, I think, you're, I think you're right. The name kind of is not distinctive enough. And the fact that high quality slow gin is still hard to come by in a lot of places, right? I mean, that's true. Although it is, it is easier than it used to be. Absolutely. For sure. But, and when we mean that, we don't mean like the cheap liqueur in the plastic bottle that, you know, no, the people no, drink mean, the, like the good stuff, you know, infused with slow berries that are kind of like mm -hmm. yeah. know, cranberry kind of stuff. But Forage Gin does one, Plymouth Gin does one. Greenhook in uh, Greenhook does here in New one. York does a beach plum, which is closely related and works just like slow gin and is very nicely made. Yeah, that's a good one. I mean, the whole slow gin fizz would be another one, right? I mean, for, for a yeah. while, that seemed to be picking up momentum thanks to Sean Harrison and Simon Ford when they were both working on Plymouth Gin years ago. And that's an incredibly good drink made with really, if you find high quality slow gin, but if it's not made with good slow gin. Oh, yeah. And it's terrible. Worst drink. <laughs> that was popular in the disco years, which is kind of funny. That that like had a pre-revival revival. But the name thing is also true with uh, modern cocktails. Uh, there's a drink that I always order when I go to uh, Attaboy, and mm -hmm. and it, which was milk and honey before that. Um, it was, it's a drink by Dan Greenbaum and it's got uh, gin and chenar and sherry in it. Absolutely delicious drink, but he called it, uh, remember the alimony. It's a, <laughs> the, one of the worst drink names I've ever heard in my entire life. I I've actually featured it in a couple of my books, but it gains no traction and it never will because right. of that name. Nonetheless, <laughs> I always order it when, when I know I, I'm in the Dan Greenbaum is associated with a bar. Yeah, I always used to get down in Philly at Franklin Mortgage uh, or Trusted Mortgage the uh, drink they called the Demon Tied to a Chair in My Brain. It rolls off the tongue. <laughs> I always yeah. really like that name, but it's a lot. Wow. Yeah, once you once you get past two words, I think you're almost out of the running. Um, oh, there was another drink created by a guy named Owen Westman. He was an Australian, but he worked in San Francisco at Bourbon and Branch, and he won a contest with this. It's called the the Chartreuse Project. You ever had one of those? No. Um, it's got uh, smoky scotch in it. It's got yellow chartreuse, green chartreuse, lemon juice. On paper, it sounds crazy. Absolutely delicious drink. Um, I would love to see that one um, in more places. And I actually think Lafroig Project is kind of a cool name. But it's uh, as you can imagine from those ingredients, I believe one of the ingredients, obviously, is Lafroig. It's an expensive drink. That will get in the way as well. Um, sometimes a drink can overcome that, like the uh, chartreuse swizzle, even though it's expensive, mm -hmm. extremely popular. You'll see it on a lot of menus all over the world. But usually that's a difficult one to overcome. The Trinidad Sour is another one like that. Yeah, very expensive very drink expensive. because of all the Angostura bitters in yeah. it. Angostura by the ounce is not cheap. You know when that happens that the drink is, number one, really good, and number two, extremely popular yeah. because the bars will still make it despite the expense. Yeah. And I think that uh, if anything, the pandemic has taught 
a lot of craft cocktail bars that, you know, streamlining of ingredients, sharing of ingredients between different recipes at the, the cost and, you know, having a bottle of something rare and expensive sit there that you're doling out one teaspoon or one dash at a time just is not economically viable anymore in, in many cities. And those cocktail prices get ever higher. It's just harder and harder to justify that. And we have to remember that when some of these drinks started to become popular, like the last word, those ingredients were cheaper. Yes, oh, yeah. absolutely. <laughs> yeah, nobody was drinking them. So, you know, there was only so much you could charge for a bottle of Luxardo Maraschino, and uh, nobody considered it essential. Or I know one of your favorites, the George T. Stagg, Don Lee, uh, Sazerac, <laughs> you know, the sta- what do you call the, the Sazerac? The Sazerac, yeah. which, I mean, depending upon where you buy your George T. Stagg, yeah. I mean, that bottle could be close to a grand, right? I mean, so yeah. that's suddenly a very, very expensive cocktail. It was crazy. We we were actually able to buy and and drink that drink for $25. Yeah. A Sazerac made with George T. Stagg, but those were the halcyon days. Yeah, which seemed like a lot of money then, but it, we had no idea of how expensive it would become. I used to get uh, Van Winkle Family Reserve Rye, 13 years old, at uh, Warehouse Liquors here in New York City. Oh, yeah. Uh, kind of a discount place uh, for $30 a bottle. <laughs> now, you know, and then I was using it in all my drinks. I was recommending it. Uh, I was publishing recipes using it because uh, I thought it was cheap and available. Yeah, and that that was the the well bourbon at Milkanani at the beginning. Yeah. And uh, Eric Castro was telling me, like, uh, back in the day in San Francisco, they would stock Yamazaki 12-year-old and just, like, make cocktails with it left and right because it was cheap. It was cheap. Absolutely. The Habiki 12, I think, was $30 a bottle. Yeah, even something like Campari is, like, almost twice what it used to be 10 years ago. Which has, I mean, all these things have an effect on uh, what's made, what's popular, what's Consider it a classic. Uh, yeah, I mean, basic economics rules everything, <laughs> and it all is well. You know, our conversation has definitely made me very thirsty. Um, <laughs> time to mix up. I think one of these sleeper hits. Uh, I don't know, second chance cocktails, mm-hmm. uh, late bloomers, whatever, whatever you want to call them. Um, let us know if you make one of these. Love to hear a few other cocktails that fit these descriptions that, uh, that you're out there making. Cheers. 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 Thank you for listening to another episode of Fix Me a Drink. Dave and I encourage you to always drink responsibly. Cheers.